Hello, and welcome to SF Crossing the Gulf. I'm Karen Burnham. And I'm Karen Lord. And we are returning for the long-delayed, long-awaited Season 3 of SF Crossing the Gulf. Since we last left our heroes, we used to be hosted on SF Signal, run by the wonderful John DiNardo. Uh, SF Signal has, has since gone dark, very sadly for the rest of us, but probably very grateful for John's family. Um, and luckily, we have now been hosted by Locus Magazine. They picked up our archives and these new episodes, and we're very grateful to Liza Trombi and crew. Definitely. Uh, also very grateful. Since, also, uh, the last time you heard me, I was living in Texas. Since then, I've lived in Colorado and Maryland and now Michigan. Uh, so I've had some ad personal adventures, but I think I'm I'm getting settled down now and and ready to jump back into this stuff. And and Karen, how's things been going for you? <laughs> well, I've not been moving about as much as you have. I am still here in Barbados. Um, I think there's a hint of tree frog song in the background to verify that. Um, but <laughs> since we last spoken podcast form, let's see. Um, I've been still writing. Um, I think probably Galaxy Game came out after that. Then, um, I've, of course, I had the pleasure of being Toastmistress at Worldcon in Helsinki. And nowadays, I am writing for um, Tremont 10, Serial Box, of some the serial fiction that is based on Ellen Kushner's Marvelous Swords Point's world. And um, that's that's it for me right now, I think. I mean, there's other stuff, but we'll 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 talk about that gradually. We don't want to, you know, give everybody all the information at once. <laughs> right, right. Although Helsinki, I'm still so jealous. Um, <laughs> okay, so so our plan is that today we are talking about the movie Black Panther because we both saw it, we both loved it, and for the next few episodes, we're gonna we're gonna talk about some movies, which is a little bit new for us, um, and then we're also going to leave the option open to talk about some fantastic short fiction as we troop across, trip across it. And the idea is that our podcast will go out once a month. Uh, they'll be hosted first at the Locust website, and then I am I have every intention of getting them onto iTunes with a one-month delay. So you'll be able to access this on iTunes as well as through the internet. And um, and we're going to play it by ear as, as it goes. So today, Black mm -hmm. Panther. Yes, and I just want to say, I know I'm a writer and not a film critic, but I have a very good reason for wanting to talk about Black Panther, and that reason is best summarized in the word Afrofuturism. Because Afro people keep talking to me. Yes, people keep talking to me about that word. Um, they talk about, you know, whether my books fall into that category. They talk to me about what I think it is, how to define it, um, all these things. And we're going to be discussing Black Panther, yes, you could say perhaps within the context of Afrofuturism, because obviously that would encapsulate both literature and film and other media. But also because there was so much about this movie that I appreciated as a writer, in terms of the dialogue, in terms of the structure of the story, that I just felt, no, 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 I'm sure... I'm sure we can we can find something to talk about <laughs> about this movie yeah. definitely. So no, the first I, thing, should... yes. Oh no, you go. No, no, no. I was going to leap in. So if there's another thing you have to say, you got to say it. 
Oh, just in, in when you talk about Afrofuturism specifically, so Yatasha Womack's mm-hmm. book, Afrofuturism, was absolutely defining for me in how I came oh, to understand mm-hmm. the entire concept. And everybody should read it. It's not very long. It's very, very accessible. And she has fantastic examples. But one of the things I, I found extremely interesting was that Afrofuturism existed completely independently of science fiction literature for a very long time. Uh, it had to do with mm-hmm. music and visual aesthetics, um, much more than it had to do with literary fiction. And so now we that- We touched on you this know, in an earlier it, podcast, remember? I believe um, so. We I mentioned believe just um, Sun Ra when we were dealing with Sun Ra, the um, cor- exactly. cord winner um, Smith short stories. Um, we were talking about that. So yeah, yeah, that's You're very right. true. And we still we still got a taste of that even in the music of Janelle Monae, who I absolutely oh, love. Right. Um, so <laughs> so yes, it's, it's well, definitely. she takes it to the next um, level. I mean, she takes the storytelling yeah. and the music and the visual aesthetic. She like she's the whole whole package. Yes. Yes, yes, absolutely. And and I and I do appreciate that a lot. And to tell the honest truth, as writers, we cannot be separate from other media like film. And we definitely I'm sorry, yes, this is a this is a superhero movie, this is a Marvel movie. We're not gonna be snobbish about that either, because you need to look around and notice that there are some award winning um writers who are right now you know, they're writing Marvel comics, they're, they're writing spin-offs, um, it's not spin-offs, tie-in novels and, and, um, novelizations for, for, um, Star Wars and so forth. So, you know, this, we're, we're not sneering at anything here. We're not snobbish about anything here. We like good storying and this is all part of our genre and we're just embracing it. Just want to say that. Absolutely. And speaking of those, you know, fantastic authors who have been invited into the actual, comic book world. Um, I've got two graphic novels of Black Panther by Tennessee Coates, who is, you know, one of the phenomenally amazing nonfiction writers for The Atlantic, who's wrote, written mm-hmm. some absolutely definitional pieces and books about the African-American mm-hmm. experience in, in the last, you know, over the last, well, his writing has been over the last, you know, maybe 15 years, but encompassing that experience over the last 50. and. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I believe they've handed Black Panther to Nnedi Okorafor. Mm-hmm. She's and, been writing well, about I the Dora Milaje. Right. Yeah. Which I tend not to get comic books issue by issue. Um, I'm I'm not a diehard comic books person, but I am more than happy to pick up the graphic novel collections <laughs> once they are <laughs> once they are in handy trade paperback form, and I will definitely mm-hmm. be getting those. Now, I, I do want to admit that I have not yet read either of them. I have not read Nettie's version of Black Panther. I have not read Tanisi Coates' version of Black Panther. I'm looking forward to doing so. Um, and I'm looking but, forward to so, hearing you tell me have. about them and find out whether we need to discuss <laughs> them on a podcast. Just saying. Good point. Good point. <laughs> um, but okay, but we have both seen the movie. So, yes. the movie. <sighs> Let me jump in. All the love for Please Shuri. Please do. Shuri. Shuri. Oh, gosh. Shuri. Shuri is the girl in the lab that we all were. <laughs> and she rules the lab. She belongs there. She is. I would call her what I would say is an effortless genius, but she's, she's still, she's still like, you know, a kid, she's still a teenager. She's still like teasing her brother and, you know, making jokes and what are those? And it's just, it was just perfection. It was just perfection. 
She was one of those minor oh, and, characters and, and, that just and, is a scene like, stealer. Oh no, like every scene, I just, every time she was on screen, I loved her so much. And and even the <laughs> things, you know, that were a little bit smart-ass, like, uh, does anybody have any any objections? I object to this corset. <laughs> <laughs> we should all go home now. <laughs> Yes, yes. Oh, and I, I just want to say in terms of, you know, you know, pride for the home region, there were two actors in this in this movie that um were from or had ties to the West Indies, and Letitia Wright, who played Shuri, is one of them. And the other one is the actor who played um Mbaku, who is another minor character, scene stealer with some of the best lines. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> But no, Shuri um, just made me happy every time I saw her on screen. Um, you know, mm-hmm. the idea that that she was running the entire she she was Q, right? She 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 yes, was running the entire R and D department for, for Wakanda. <laughs> yes, yes, and and there's there's there. I mean, she did have the humorous lines, you know. I mean, the the one the quotable ones, you know, don't scare me like that colonizer. I mean, that was one that people have been getting some mileage out of, um, and. But, you know, there was this one moment where, you know, she's asking for some tech behind. He's like, they work perfectly. He said, how many times must I tell you just because something works doesn't mean it can't be improved. And the way she said that, I just sort of got tingles, you know, because it's like, it's like this declaration of excellence. It's like, you know, we're not just doing good. We're not just doing serviceable here. We're, we're pushing it as far as we can go. We're, we're making sure that it can be the best it can be. And, and that, was, that was just a fantastic little touch, honestly. Well, and styling too. I mean, she made her tech not just, you know, functional. She made her tech look good. Oh my goodness. That is, listen, that is actually something that I noticed throughout the entire movie. The aesthetic of how something can be both functional and beautiful. And when I say beautiful, I don't just mean even eye candy. You could tell that there are like also layers of meaning woven into everything. Um, I will, I will now say that my, complete lose control shriek out point of the movie was and uh, yes anybody listening to this yes there are going to be spoilers all the way through if you didn't realize that before oh yeah but i think we, only maybe two percent of the population has not seen this movie I'm, by now <laughs> yeah but, i i am spoilerific <laughs> good good but when they're in battle and for the first time the blankets um that the border tribe were for the first time they they like whip them up and you just see the shields come out i am just like flinging myself back in, in, in the chair in the movies i'm just like whoa you know i'm wishing wishing that i could have something like that yeah so there was this way where you just looked at the tech and it wasn't just that it was cool it was that it looked so good and i i just sort of thought to myself there has got to be a fashion movement there's got to be a fashion movement because i just saw things i wanted to wear or wanted to like have hanging on my wall or whatever sorry getting getting a little off track but it was a visually gorgeous movie in that sense oh yeah it, and and, um, well, and, and, and you know you don't well, I was just going to say that that you can find many articles online, and you should go and find those articles about uh, uh, interviews with the designers, with the costume designers, yes. the influences that they were drawing on, the real African, the different, you know, the different countries, the different tribes, uh, the different languages that they used um, as inspiration mm-hmm. for the writing that was in the movie. All that, um, if you if you find any. Um, any of those kind of articles, they're absolutely worth your time. The, all those decisions were made in a very, very informed way. In a very informed way, and in a way that any writer 
who enjoys world building what just you know was would be geeking out at what what they put together so if you already have like a nodding acquaintance with some of the regions and and nations that they pulled inspiration from and you know what goes into world building it was just a very very satisfying thing to see yeah well and let's talk a, a little bit about the the kind of um there's a motif that they use a particular technology where there's I would have called them holograms, but they're made out of sand or they appear to be made out of sand. And the intro, the entire five minute world building intro scene is done with these kind of sand models. Yeah. Yeah. Now I, I happened to see this on an IMAX and I believe I saw it in 3d and jealous, actually jealous. Yeah. (laughs) The only problem with that was that this spinning camera for the first five minutes of the world building and info dumping, I was like, whoa, can the ride stop and I can get off now? (laughs) I was a little overwhelming in an IMAX setting. Um, But on the other Mm -hmm. hand, I really appreciated that they used that same visual aesthetic for all, you know, Mm -hmm. the sort of, uh, you know, communications between the different characters in, you know, the different Wakandan characters throughout um, mm-hmm. and use that, that way of doing simulations, which makes total sense as a, a you know, sand is easily manipulated in an electrostatic way. Um, it's almost like a 3D pixel, first... isn't it? Yeah, it is. It, it absolutely is. It makes perfect sense. Um, mm-hmm. But that 3D, or sorry, that intro scene, really mm-hmm. did raise some of the questions, even if it didn't highlight them at the time, that Killmonger mm-hmm. ends up wrestling with, you know, giving Killmonger a, a perfectly legitimate point of view when he comes in as a villain, which is something that Marvel has really tried to do. In every superhero movie that they've done, every solo movie, um, there's this point where the hero ends up fighting the bad guy version of themselves. So Iron Man fights bad Mm -hmm. Iron Man and Hulk fights bad Hulk and Captain America fights another bad super, you know, super soldier, super soldier, Black Panther, Mm -hmm. right. Black Panther ends up fighting Killmonger who gets all black of Black Panther's powers and suit. Mm -hmm. But, and who is of his blood with Killmonger. And, and right, who is legitimately, like, Umbaku was not wrong when he said, well, it wasn't you know, what was so the much as it was. <laughs> yeah, he, he was defeated. That's, mm-hmm. that's how this works. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah, it's like, he followed the rules. Um, but, you know, there is that scene in the, in the intro where you see as Wakanda's forming and has the vibranium, you see other African slaves being led away in chains. And you, mm-hmm. it, I remember thinking at that moment, why didn't Wakanda do something about this? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And of course, that's basically Killmonger's entire point. Yeah, yeah. If you had all this, why didn't you... Why didn't you reveal yourselves? Why didn't you take over and so on and so forth? And, and you know, it took me a while to even realize that at the very beginning, for some reason, when, it, when I first saw it, I thought that it was actually um, a, a younger T'Chaka talking to, t- to his child, to his son T'Challa. And then only later did I realize that, no, what we were actually hearing is um, Njobu talking to Eric, um, who becomes Killmonger. Mm. 
that's that's actually what that beginning scene is. So there's a there's a direct direct link to the whole question of you know how Killmonger comes to be who he is and why he has all these doubts about what Wakanda is doing and why it's doing it that way because he's always been asking why he's always been asking why why are why are they why are they hiding why should they hide if everything is so fantastic there if we have all this power that can be used why would you just kind of put yourself away with it so you know this this is an interesting question because <laughs> okay people do see killmonger as a very very compelling um villain and you know there are all the t-shirts that they're saying killmonger was right and so on and so forth and fascinating to me is that, of course, there's another person in the movie who says something similar to what he does, but says it in a different way, and that's Nakia. She is also saying, you know, we could be doing more. She herself goes out of Wakanda and, and does a little vigilante stuff and, and tries to make things better for people um, because she thinks they could be doing more, should be doing more, but they have different ideas as to how that can be accomplished. And I always think to myself of that very important quote, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. Because Killmonger is, is basically saying, we go out and we conquer, and we have an empire. And then that line, you know, that is a blatant line. The sun will never set on the Wakandan empire. <laughs> That's the British empire quote, you know. Right. So, so you know, yeah. it's it's a really, really, really clear thing. And you know, I've seen some people saying, oh, at the end, Killmonger kind of won because, you know, Wakanda came out of hiding, they came out of the shadows. And, so, and it's like, no, he didn't really quite win. It was Nakia who won <laughs> because um, it, it was still a question of, okay, we're going to do this, but how are we going to do it? And Killmonger was completely trained in the imperialist mindset. They made that quite clear in terms of his his military training, his CIA training, even the way, you know, I mean, Everett Ross, <laughs> one of one of our Tolkien white guys. <laughs> yep, sorry, I had to get that out there, I had to say it. Um he he made it quite clear. I mean, people some people were saying, you know, why was he even there? Um and I I and, and why did he some people thought that he made the CIA look sympathetic. Well, I don't have any comment on that, at least not one that can be recorded, but he made it quite clear what the CIA has done to many African and other nations, the destabilization, how they do certain things. He said that so frankly, so matter-of-factly, so almost casually, that I don't think people realize that, you know, he may have been there almost like lightly, but he certainly wasn't there in a heroic kind of form. He wasn't oh, goodness, there. No. He, no, he was basically like, okay, yeah, you know, we created Killmonger and we gave him these tools because this is what we do. And anybody just looking at that matter of fact statement, and you know, this is all historical record by now for a lot of the things he's talking about. Yep. You know, they have to realize that um, this this is actually when he says in the movie, and this is why I love the writing, the dialogue. Every every bit of dialogue does something in this movie, and he says. He's not Wakandan. He's one of ours. And that is, is true. That is true. He's completely in that mode. And I mean, even when you look at the, the spirit realm vision that takes him to his ancestors, it takes him to the apartment in Oakland. And, and then there's this whole question of, you know, if, if he had been brought home earlier and, 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 and you know, 
we were discussing, you know, why wasn't that the case? And I, I get the impression really that Njobu was just not supposed to got that distracted when he was overseas. He was not supposed to settle down with anybody. He was certainly not supposed to have kids. So I just get the impression that um, there were just a few things he was trying to keep quiet. Um, and definitely yeah. the whole disappearance of an, of an entire boy into a foreign country. He, he wanted to keep his son close to him and he thought he could protect him and he was kind of wrong, which was sad. Um, but, but yeah, so, you know, you, you have the situation where he didn't bring him home and he got disconnected. He got disconnected from his lineage. He got disconnected from his traditions and he didn't know who he was, who he was. Listen, throughout the movie at strategic points, people are asking, who are you? And that is so important. Even when Killmonger goes to the throne room and he's challenging them, he's like saying, somebody asks who I am. Somebody asks me what my name is. And then finally, somebody stands up. Um, River Tribe representative stands up and says, who are you? And then he gives his full name in Wakandan. And lineage. And that's also, and lineage. Well, yeah, it's all, it's all a piece. <laughs> and, and of course, that's also right, how the right. movie ends with, with the child in Oakland looking at T'Challa and saying, who are you? You know, and, and I just, I just thought, it, I just thought it was absolutely beautiful the way that, that kind of ties everything together because, you know, when again in that apartment scene, um, his, his father was saying, they would say that you are lost. Being lost and not knowing who you are. And those, those two things sort of like being tied together. And then the power of knowing who you are. And then the power of once you know who you are of showing people who you are. You know, that, that just, there's a, there's a, there's a real poetry to that structure. I really appreciated that a lot. Mm. Now, one thing that, that I noticed when I watched it was, you know, so, so come on, there when his father dies, but they never mention his mother, like, ever. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah and that and, kind of feeds think... into the way Killmonger treats women versus how T'Challa treats women. It does indeed. And, you know, in a way, I kind of see how um, she couldn't be present. And we can assume a very early death or something like that because she really doesn't seem to have had a lot of influence on his life. She's just not even mentioned. Um, but, but See, yes, I, there's this vast difference between would have assumed the women of Wakanda. Mom. Anyway. See again? <laughs> no, I still would have assumed there'd be a single mom there somewhere. Her, her mother, her, like, his maternal grandmother would have stepped in, or there should have been some... Uh, well, maybe, maybe not. Some... Maybe not. And, and there could have been all kinds of reasons for that, because again, if Mjobu is thinking, um, these people don't know who I really am, you know, I'll keep my son close to me and I'll build and I'll mm. hide these things behind the wall for him to discover and find his legacy someday, then he's not going to want to turn his son over to the other side of the family and be fully American. He's still kind of holding out hope that this is a prince that he's going to carry home someday. Okay, we're speculating. That makes more sense than anything. Okay, than than anything I thought because my okay. my impression had basically been, well, his mom must have been out at work and she'll come back home at some point and then she'll be a single mom and and that would have been a huge influence on him. But if if Mjobu was was um had had separated, had distanced himself and his son from the American influence, I that that makes more sense than anything else. Okay, <laughs> but there's still anyway. how Killmonger. 
yeah, the 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 um how he treats women versus how T'Challa treats women. Yeah. The, the whole the whole death of his girlfriend thing, you know, where where Claw yeah. seemed to be really, really sure he had leverage over him. Like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to stop this Bonnie and Clyde thing you guys got going on. It's like, yeah, I don't know, think you know who you're dealing with. <laughs> and, and, and really, it was like, yeah. and again, the, the flip in that where there's so many movies, you know, I'm just going to say it straight. There's so many movies where it's the light-skinned black woman who gets sort of um, privileged in terms of um, visibility and um, the kind of role that she has over the dark-skinned black woman. And, and mm-hmm. this one really kind of played at where, you know, his, his girlfriend is probably the lightest black woman in there. And, you know, she's, she's got the, um, the, the hair thing, which is another whole marker and so on. And she's treated as something entirely disposable. She is treated as peripheral, um, I can barely remember a line she said, <laughs> and and she dies, and she dies quickly, and 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 was her name mentioned? I can't remember if her name was mentioned. That's how bad it is. Okay, right. And yep. she's in in such contrast, and her interaction with, with with Killmonger is in such contrast to T'Challa surrounding himself by these women who are, you know, his family and his loves and his his colleagues and. There are people that and he his respected to. advisors. Yes, basically. I mean, he walks into that casino, flanked by basically <laughs> his two highest operatives, who just happen to be women, and it's not really a big deal. I mean, Wakabi, Wakabi's like, you know, can I come to you to Korea? And he's like, no, 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 I, I got it covered. The two up selected. You know, it's, 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 it's not even, <laughs> it's not even remarked upon. It's casual. It's, it's, it's just. And I, I have to say, I really did enjoy that casino fight scene. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean... So much. Again, Best again, use just, of an awkward com- wig ever. <laughs> Iconic scene. Iconic dress. And then the car oh. chase afterwards. I mean, there are certain elements that just have to be there in a superhero movie. But the way you play with those elements um, can be particularly memorable. And the whole aspect of the, you know, the car chase and, and Okoye in a red dress sparing the car, like, like, you know, she's on, on the hunt with the, with the, you know, trying to take down an elephant or something. I don't know. It, it was just like, oh my goodness. And, and to tell the truth, even the comedy aspect of their, their entire vehicle gets blown to pieces. And there's that little end scene where, you know, she kind of comes surfing down with her on, on top of the, um, I think it was the door, and her spare is a break. And then just a little after her, there is, is um, Nakia still in the driver's seat, just sort of like, you know, coming up. And they kind of stop at the same point, you know, not a scratch on her. And, and I hope you remember <laughs> in the casino fight, um, Nakia takes off her high heel shoes to like bash someone with. And then mm-hmm. they carefully, every time they show her accelerating in the car chase, they, they carefully point out that her foot is still bare. It's the little touches. Right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the little things. Yeah. Sorry. Every, every so often, well, the, the movie is like that for me. There are bits that are really deep that make me ponder for a while. And then there are bits that are just like little funny touches. I'm just like, somebody had fun. Somebody had fun. And that just makes it even more joyous. Exactly. Yep. And and you know, and when they're when they're teasing T'Challa about did he freeze? Like it. Yes. Like a oh deer in goodness. headlights. <laughs> but you see, 
this this all but this all ties together mutual respect right with mutual I mean, respect I, I, this is a thing you, he's not being he's not being emasculated or anything nonsensical like that no. it's really a very healthy kind of um as you say a bantering a kind of a, a way of showing love and and i mean i i've always said that um out of all the marvel superheroes i think it's probably captain america is my favorite in the marvel movies followed closely by mm-hmm. thor Although that may have more to do with Chris Hemsworth's ability to do comic t- comedic timing really well <laughs> than anything else, but right. um, <laughs> but what happens when you when you look at Captain America's character or Steve Rogers' character, you really say, and also when you look at T'Challa compared to Killmonger, there is this real sort of display of what I would call non toxic masculinity. You know, where Amen. He's, he's, yes. He's he's the king, you know. You have no doubt about that. He goes in there with a spear and a shield and he gets beaten up and the blood flows and whatever, whatever. But he will still let his little sister play a prank on him. He will still listen to his <laughs> mother. He will still, you know, have tension with his ex and freeze. <laughs> and um and he will still listen to and his general. And he will general. absolutely listen Exactly. Well, sometimes, because sometimes she said things and Nakia said something else, and then he followed Nakia instead. But, <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, so and you, I think we can all that. agree that Okoye was completely right when Ross yeah. got shot. Everett Ross yeah. got shot. And Okoye's like, oh, hell no, you're not bringing him back to Wakanda. <laughs> Nakia's like, you have to. And we're all agreeing with Okoye going, do not bring a CIA agent back to your very secret country. Don't do that. That's yep. a bad idea. Um, and she it only was turned right, out but... she was right, and the only thing that saved her, of course, was well, you know, this is this is the, this is the thing that happens with plot. You have to have a little a little mistake like that because then you have them there at the right moment to say to them, "I can tell you everything about this person who we know as Killmonger." <laughs> so if he hadn't right. been there, we wouldn't have had that. So that's why we needed Everett Ross. And I I do well, get an impression. Oh, uh, there were two other things with, with Ross. One was um, you know, two of the best applause lines. So you get the, the uh, you know, colonizer, don't startle me that way, which was huge. And then when he starts to try and, and explain things to M'Baku and they just hoot him down. Oh, man. No, let me tell you. Man, my, entire, my entire theater here in suburban Detroit mm-hmm. just started clapping. It was, it was a wonderful, <laughs> wonderful moment. Oh, and and with Ross, Wait, no, no, we talked a little bit. Stop! We can't move on from oh, okay. that yet because the next bit after that moment, which is a beautiful moment, is when he's like, you know, I'm gonna feed it to my children. Just kidding, we are vegetarians, and then he starts to laugh. And at that point, I am sorry, I completely fell in love with Mbaku. Okay, he was oh, he totally. already had so much going for him, but at that point, I was like, look at this, look at this fool just laughing at himself and enjoying himself. <laughs> It was hilarious. It was beautiful. And another another point that was really, really endearing for both T'Challa and Baku, when T'Challa says, um, you know, can I can I ask you to protect my mother? And you know, he's like, Absolutely, you know, without question. And then he's like, I could really use an army. He's like, Yeah, I bet you could. <laughs> So there's that just this touching moment of you know he's gonna he's gonna take care of his family for him he's gonna take care of his mother that's huge that's important you know that's that is that is T'Challa's prime responsibility that he's helping him with but he's also like yeah but you know I'm not I'm not bleeding for you no we 
have some boundaries here. <laughs> so, so there was that moment. Sorry, I had to interrupt because, as I said, that's all, that's all of a piece. And, and I wanted to rave some more about M'Baku because I really think he's an incredible character. Go on. No, and saying? he is. And, well, uh, to follow on in your point, I, I, again, it gets into this non-toxic non relationships thing where T'Challa is yes. a king and M'Baku is a king. And, um, and they respect each other. They are playing by the same rules. Um, hang on. He's not really a king. He's like the leader of well, his particular, okay, leader of that um, tribe. yeah, of the Jabari, but he's not like, I got the impression that he, king yeah, is still like for the no, country right. overall. <clears throat> yeah. Okay. He's, yeah. you know, he's that fifth tribe that's kind of off to the side. Mm -hmm. Um, but there but, again, but again there's he showed his strength understand by, by surrendering. Context. They understand each other's context. They're, they're, they, it yeah. gets back to that mm -hmm. they're playing by the same rules. They are playing by the same rules. They respect the same structures, even if they do not actually like each other, which is very right. important. It's it's kind of like you know, um, we we can operate together because we respect um, the the institutions, even if we can't see eye to eye personally, and and that and right. that is always that is always huge. And and to me, the bit again when they were fighting in the, in the beginning, when he challenged him and he had him by the edge, and he said, "Don't make me kill you. Your people need you." And then he taps out, you know, there's something really powerful about that surrender. Yeah. And you can see the caliber of the person there because, you know, later on when um, T'Challa is like, you know, says to Killmonger, um, you know, it doesn't have to end this way. You know, we can, we can see if we can heal you and so on and so forth. And he's like, no, I don't want that. And, you know, I know people thought it was a really brilliant and dramatic death, especially with the line, you know, bury me in the ocean um, with my people who knew that death was preferable to chains. The point still is, it's a mirror of that first bit where he's basically saying, you know, you know, you're, you're, you, you, you can still have, you can still live, you can still participate in some way in what happens in the future. And all he could think about is, I'll be in chains. This is not the way I want it. So, right, I'm just going to die. Now, you know, that did bother me. It bothered me because it it, it bothered me. Okay, first of all, it's entirely in keeping with, with Killmonger's character. So it didn't bother me in terms of the actual plot right, yeah. and the story. Yeah. Why it bothered me is that when people look at that and they see that as, ooh, what a good death. There are there are tons of activists who have ended up in prison and who have still managed from within prison to to be inspiring, to be amazing, to be, you know, to, to move evolution and revolution on and change their countries. So I, I found that kind of significant. I mean, you know, Mandela, of course, is the first name that comes to mind. But there, right. there, and, there are and, many, and many other examples. Context, uh... Martin Luther King's letter from in Birmingham jail. Yeah, I mean, well, I, I mentioned more Mandela because we're talking like long-term incarceration, which is obviously what Killmonger realized he was likely facing due to everything he tried to do in Wakanda, which was not small change. Um, but yes, you know, it was it was something that he did not need to choose. You know, he could have been like, okay, you know what? I've seen the sunset on Wakanda. Um, you know, we, we'd have got off to a bit of a bad start, but if you're willing to, you know, it would have been interesting. It would have been interesting. And sometimes, sometimes a villain who doesn't die, but who like gets tucked away 
to come back later on. I mean, I know there are people who like were Loki. hoping. Well, good grief. I'm almost, I'm sorry to say this, people. <laughs> yes, I like Thor, but I'm almost tired of Loki. How many second chances does Loki get? I mean, by his oh, nature, billion, he kind of has to. Loki, right? <laughs> because he's Loki. <laughs> but yeah, he could he could have been a, a better grade, I'm sorry, of Loki. He could have been. He could have been that extra, that that um, particular voice that is almost like there to remind T'Challa that his ancestors weren't perfect, that his father wasn't perfect, that they could make the wrong decision. He could have been that. He didn't necessarily have to 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 turn into this like amazing reformed character. I don't think any of us expected that. But to mm-hmm. be still alive and still a factor would have been really interesting from a story point of view and from a sequel point of view. I would have loved to have seen now, that. That's that scene, Killmonger's death scene, bothered me, but for a completely different reason, which was that in that moment when the fighting was done T'Challa had the opportunity, he had the space, he had a moment of peace. He could have said, I'm sorry for what my family did to you. And he never said it. And I I have a lot of regret about that. He never apologized, because we all agree that that Mm -hmm. Killmonger's character was treated poorly, was treated shabbily. Um, mm-hmm. could have been brought back to Wakanda, could have somehow been reintegrated, um, mm-hmm. did not have to be abandoned. And I wanted very much for T'Challa to say, what my father did to you was wrong. Mm-hmm. And it never mm-hmm. happened. I think, well, I, maybe we have to see what was cut. You never know. <laughs> you never know. Uh, what, yeah, what the director's cut either. will be... If the director's cut six hours long, I'll still watch it. I don't know about you. <laughs> <laughs> yes, absolutely. So I, I don't, I don't want to make any assumptions, but I will tell you the one scene that made me think that this would be, this would be hard for me to apologize to this guy for anything after this, and that was when he killed Zuri, because mm. you know that was a real moment of him showing what kind of king he was going to be. He was one of the king that burned everything to the ground, really. It's like, oh, you have these traditions, you have these, um, you know, rituals or whatever. I don't care about any of it. Um, killing Zuri was the first step. Now, I have since then slightly modified what I saw in that scene because on, on a subsequent viewing, I realized that the reason he killed Zuri was that he suddenly looked at him and recognized him as Uncle James. So that was a reaction right. to an even deeper level of betrayal. And I was like, oh, okay, no, actually, I kind of I kind of understand why you did that. Although it wouldn't have been my choice, I understand why you did that. But again, it's like, you almost can't apologize. I think, in a way, T'Challa not apologizing wasn't because an apology wasn't due, because an apology would have been empty. Because the damage was too deep. <laughs> And and I think that <clears throat> I think that there was something of an acknowledgement in there. Even even if you want to look at it in a completely kind of symbolic kind of way, when he was saying, Maybe we can still heal you, he wasn't just talking about the physical damage he'd done to his body. No, that's a very good point. 
that he'd be even willing to extend the offer, right? Well, no, not just that, but he was basically saying the 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 damage to your spirit is also our fault. The damage to your spirit is also our responsibility, and maybe we can still heal you. Because that's the point, I think, where an apology matters. Not just, we're sorry for doing this, but we're sorry, and here's something we think we can actually do to make amends. Right. No, that's a really good point. That's a really good point. Hmm. I like any book or movie that when I think about it, I can just like find another layer. Find another layer, find another view, find another... And and that movie does this for me. I understand. I know people get upset about hype and etc. etc. But I can understand why people go again and again to see this movie. Mm-hmm. Because they're not just they're not just reacting to the emotional rush of like you know, Okoye, um, you know, in the red dress and throwing the wig and and Shuri being marvelous in her lab and and um, all the amazing um, fight scenes and so on. It's every time you you look at something and you have a little bit more knowledge to the background, every time you hear a bit of dialogue, I do actually want subtitles in cinemas for my own selfish reasons, not just for those who are hearing impaired, but I would love to have subtitles because there's so much you miss. And when you have a rich script that really does a lot of the dialogue, you don't want to miss a thing. And this one, you know, you, you kind of go back again and again and you're like, okay, well, now I'm watching the, the beginning bit knowing that that's Eric and Njobo talking together and it has a different meaning for right. me now. So, so you, you go back and, and meet, well, well, I've always said that I write my books as books to be reread. The book that you read <laughs> from me a second time is going to be different from the book that you've read the first time. And that movie is like that. You go back and it's like, it's a different movie. It's a different movie. It's a different movie. And that, to me, is the staying power that it has. And that's why I think that its success is very much deserved. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and can we talk just one moment again about just how beautiful everyone looks? Yes. Let I mean, us talk about the, that. The, <sighs> the lighting. You know, the, the lighting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, I actually know a tiny bit about this because... When I was an undergrad, way back when, I was um, in a residence with a film student who used to use us for his homework. <laughs> and I was in one of those situations where he was like, please, 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 I need somebody to help me with this assignment. I just need you to like pretend to be whatever. And when I say that I do not act, I mean I do not act. But, you know, he just wanted like bodies <laughs> that would stand and take direction. So I was there for him. And he discovered the hard way. Just what it means when you um, ask your your one friend who's um, Black Barbadian and your other friend who's like a redhead Canadian to be in the same scene. The lighting <laughs> challenges, shall we say, are significant. <laughs> so you have you have an industry, you have a Hollywood industry which has basically developed on all the best ways to light white people so they don't look like corpses, so they don't look sunburned, mm-hmm. so they don't look like over-freckled or over-pimpled or whatever, and the makeup, because it's all of a piece. And then when it comes to... I mean, I think... I'm trying to remember who said this. I can't remember if it was DuVernay or if it was... Oh, goodness. Or if it was an actor, maybe Viola Davis. But somebody said, 
There's something called getting the hero lighting, which is to say mm-hmm. you start off by lighting the most important person in the movie the best first, and then everybody else kind of trickles away after that. So obviously, if the majority of your film heroes uh, are are kind of protagonists or centered on people of a paler complexion, you know whatever important minor role you might be playing, if you're a darker complexion, that's you're you're well out of luck. So you had a movie right. where, um, from what I understand, again there've been beautiful articles all about um, all of the work that goes into the background. And the people who worked on Black Panther are people who've also worked on Creed and Fruitvale with the same director. Um, people who are, you know, even known for like, I think, I think maybe one of one other person was in a couple of was it some Spike Lee movies or something. I don't know, but but you just you just get this understanding that they've been in this building their skills for some time. So they managed to you know, create the situation where you're looking at the people and it's like, oh my goodness, these are people I recognize. I just want to remind everybody, if you do not know this, as I said, I live in Barbados, where there's about 90% people of African descent, all right? So honestly, I can actually look at movies and be like, eh, you know? But then you look at something like Black Panther, it's like, no, everybody like looks really good. You look like you're like the sun is glowing from within, okay? And that is that is mm-hmm. excellent lighting and excellent makeup. I will say one other thing though. Um the hero lighting is a is a good way to express it in terms of you focus on your protagonist looking good. But there's also a filter of you have to know that what you're looking at can look good in order to want to light it to look good. I think I've seen some examples of um, you know, of of actors, actresses in various things where you know that, especially for the particular role they're playing, that they could be made to look a lot better than they are. But for some reason, mm-hmm. whoever's dealing with them just doesn't even seem to want to make the effort. It's like they think the potential isn't there. Um, we were talking about this. We mentioned, um, oh, the, in- the Instagram, the Instagram um, mentality is basically that you take a boat a burst of about a hundred pictures and then you leaf through and it kind of the range goes from <laughs> derp to diva <laughs> and and somewhere you just manage to to pick all the best ones you know you're all up there in the diva scale and all the derp ones get tossed out and nobody ever sees those but that's right. because you know you are you and you're looking for what's best and so forth especially if you have a fairly healthy sort of ego and self-esteem or what have you but sometimes, you know, you can you can be given somebody else's range of derp to diva, and you're like, yeah, well, personally, I think this person's more of a derp, so I'm going to take this range of, of 10 photos, and it's actually going to be on the lower scale. But you don't even notice that they have a diva end. Because for you, it's mm-hmm. like your vision is permanently pointed down the lower end of the scale. It's like, I've, I've been told by my upbringing or my society, whatever, that um, this is not attractive. So, of course these photos are probably the best i can get out of them we'll roll with these well but i to 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 jump in for a second i've seen that with some some author photos like uh, people have done an author photo shoot and they'll put a selection of like 10 up and and ask people hey which one do you think is best and like there'll be this one photo that everyone's like oh this one you know that'll get like the majority of 
good likes or hits or whatever, most votes. And then the mm -hmm. author themselves goes with this other picture that all the rest of us are like, yeah, no. <laughs> and you can tell us that their, their self-image is oh. just so diametrically opposed from what the rest of us see of oh. them. Okay. Anyway, so, it's, it's, so the outside it's world is actually seeing them more beautiful than they see themselves. Right. Yeah. It's a, oh, it's an interesting. Yeah. Um, huh. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yep. And I know. And I, it's, speaking, it's... Of, speaking of Locust, um, mm -hmm. uh, the the visual artist that Locust has, and she does a whole ton of other things. She's brilliant. French uh, Francesca Maiman. Um, oh, you know, she has adorable. to deal with that yes. a lot. <laughs> Isn't she wonderful? She is marvelous. She is talented. Hi. <laughs> no, really. Um, and she's, and she's she has amazing. totally remade the visual aesthetic of Locust. The covers are mm -hmm. so fantastic now. We promise you this is not an advertisement. We just, this is generally, just gen, genuinely no, we really our just favorite people. Mm -hmm. Totally. You Absolutely. Know. <laughs> <laughs> Respect um, you. So, so yeah, and, and the other, the other nice thing about um, the way the the balance is, and and as you say, you know the the representation in the movie where you know it's ninety five percent black actors. Mm -hmm. uh, one thing I appreciated is that uh, Claw, Andy Circus's Claw, mm -hmm. gets killed off yeah. halfway with it, halfway through the movie. He's, he's I it sets up as a big bad, and then <laughs> I was like, are they just get like, and I'm like, okay, no, you're you're a peripheral all this time. Okay, that's good. <laughs> Um, but the other thing is uh, Everett Ross. We've we've uh, identified the the things that he did, the roles he played. He he got to have his little hero moment. He gave a very uh, specific info dump, and and mm -hmm. um, Okoye was totally right about that. He should mm -hmm. never have been let into Wakanda. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> but he's so trivial. He doesn't appear in the actual wrap up scene. Uh, yeah. He does appear in a mid credit scene. But of course, you know, mm -hmm. Marvel movies now, there's the wrap, you know, there's the climax and then the wrap up, which you could also call denouement or den denouement, depending on how, you know, French you are. <laughs> um, and then there's a mid credit scene and then a final credit scene to make sure you sit through all the mm -hmm. credits. Yeah. Um, so Ross so does appear in the <laughs> mid... <laughs> Which you should know not to walk out. No, I actually walked see, out at the mid-credit scene of Black Thor Ragnarok, and I was so like, why many, didn't I stay? So many non-Marvel superhero movie watching people went to see Black <laughs> Panther that, yes, they were walking out the moment the credits started to roll. <laughs> you Sorry. Yeah. But yeah, the mid-credit scene, which is one at the UN, where he's basically saying, um, you know, right. we're going to be more proactive, and we're going to be out there, and we're going to be offering aid and so forth. And Everett Ross is in the back doing his little smirk because because he's in the know now. You know, he was the one earlier who was like, yeah, some farmers, you know, grasslands, whatever. Right, whatever. yeah. <laughs> oh, it turns so, out they're sitting on a mountain of vibranium. <laughs> so yeah, he had his, he had his little nod. But, but again, in um, the in the actual wrap up scene, so because officially the credit scenes, yes, they're they're important to tie into other movies, but they are not part of. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not important part because they do know that people walk out at, you know, as soon as the credits start to roll. Um, in mm -hmm. that wrap up scene, the, the hero scene where here are all the important people uh, gathered together to, to show what they've done. Ross is mm -hmm. I, Ross is nowhere to be seen. Claw is nowhere to be seen. There are no white people to be seen. It's a wonderful thing. There's another movie that did that now that you mentioned that. 
Do you mm-hmm. remember, or did you ever see way back um, the the Jaden Smith um, remake of the Karate Kid that had um, um, Jackie Chan in it? I <laughs> someday you and I can talk about why I only ever saw half of that, and it had nothing to do with the movie. But I oh, do. No. I saw oh, okay. the first half of it, but not the second half. Well, the first half is actually the bit you need because when he first came to China. Do you remember there was another kid who spoke English? Mm-hmm. And he was kind yeah. of like, you know, yeah, we can hang out with the fellows. Ah, okay, maybe. And then he just kind of disappears. Uh-huh. That, that was the one white kid in the movie. And he was, he was <laughs> treated exactly like most um, kind of side characters of color are in movies. So mm, so yeah, it was mm. when I saw it, I was like, yeah, Will Smith, I see what you're doing, and I love it <laughs> because <laughs> nice. when you, when you see it flipped, when you see it flipped, and you're just sort of like, yeah, it is that egregious? It really is that blatant, where there's just this mm-hmm. really really helpful character who comes around who is seemingly like more eager for attachment and friendship than the protagonist, and the protagonist then kind of just ignores him and he fades away. Yeah, yeah, we've seen that. We've seen that. And, and yeah. we, we see who's usually cast for that, and now you're flipping it. And and similarly, the whole the the kind of um, you know again, people were saying, oh, Everett Ross was was treated like a hero. He just followed Shuri's instructions like a boss. <laughs> totally did, yeah. which was very good. He was extremely obedient. He followed orders. He, he I mean, the most that he did was when she was like, get out of the lab because they're shooting it. He's like, no, put me back in. Yeah, okay, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Apart yeah, from that, okay, you get your you follow the instructions. <laughs> but yeah. And, and but don't get I me mean, wrong, I love Martin Freeman. I love Martin Freeman and everything I see him in. My only problem with the Sherlock reboot in, in on the BBC was that there was too much Benedict Cumberbatch and not enough Martin Freeman. <laughs> um, but he, he played that just, I mean, he played it, I loved, I loved what he did with it. And I loved that it was secondary. Now, I need to, to speak to somebody who's a dedicated comics reader, but I got the impression that the original character of Everett Ross was actually played as comic, was actually written as comic relief. So this is <laughs> kind of, you know, that they actually elevated Martin Freeman's character <laughs> in the movie than, than keeping it close to what it was written as. So, so you know, there you go. You know, it's, it's, it's still, it's still, I mean, but... I'll be honest, I could talk about this movie for a very long time, and a very long time is not what we have. So I'm just going to wrap it up and say for myself what I took away from it, okay? Um, I'm not going to use words that are um, words that have very specific meaning for people. I'm not going to use words like Afrofuturism or representation or anything like that. What I will say is you can have a movie that first of all has a, a beautiful balance of gender where the characters all have motivations. You can see why they're doing what they're doing, even if you don't always agree with it. Where the line between the good guys and the bad guys is, is not always as clear as that. Okabe is another person who I want to talk about more. We don't really have time, but I really, really love what they did with his character. Because again, totally his agree. decisions made sense within his framework and within his own experience, and um, and then exactly. of course yeah. the whole the whole show done with him and Okoye. Oh goodness, my my theater erupted. Oh, yeah. Yes, kneel to your woman, but I digress. But um, <laughs> um, 
you know, so to be able to have all of that in a so-called superhero movie, you know, is, is just brilliant to me. And yes, when you were looking at the kind of people who were coming to watch Black Panther and word of mouth was very strong, these are people who they, they couldn't tell you who Captain America is. They don't know who Iron Man is. They don't really care. It was one of the best in terms of a franchise type, you know, series type movie. One of the best standalone-ish um, kind of movies that has ever been done. And and I really, and, and it still, of course, connects to the Marvel Universe. It still sets up a lot of things that are hugely important later on. But it is just so strong on its own that they did an incredible job. And we're still going to be talking about the costuming and, and the symbolism and and the excellent dialogue. We're still going to be talking about those things for quite a long time. It deserves its success. You know, how those adaptations have been done, what choices the filmmakers um, um, have, have, have taken to, to, to tell the story in a different medium. So, so yeah, I mean, we're, we're going to have to probably have a couple of podcasts looking at those at some point, I think. Yeah. I suspect you might be right. So let's leave it on that note with some some teasers for for the future. And uh, thanks, everyone, for for listening to us, whether this is uh, a welcome uh, reintroduction for people who remember us from SF Signal or or if this is your first time. I hope you found something worth uh, something that piqued your interest, something that uh, sparked some ideas. And Mm -hmm. with any luck, we will uh, be with you again next month. Correcting our pronunciation. Yes, and correcting anything, arguing with any of us that we we are we love that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So until next time, we will leave you as the as our podcast SF Crossing the Gulf. Bye.